Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Healthy Love and Money. Today, I have Megan Kopka with me. She is a certified financial planner and a woman on a mission to help others move through their grief and financial planning. Megan and I were just catching up before the show started and she shared that she's down in Costa Rica working location independent right now. So, Megan, welcome to the show and I look forward to the conversation ahead. Thanks, Ed. I'm so glad to meet you. How serendipitous and I'm looking forward to the show as well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, you know, so Megan and I, we met, we're financial planning nerds. We are at the XY Planning Network conference in Denver last month and serendipitously met, I think in the hallway coming off the elevator and just struck up a conversation. Megan's incredibly friendly. And so she said, oh, you're a couples therapist. Oh, that's interesting. And we started talking and one thing led to another. And so today's podcast, we're really going to be unpacking the process of losing a partner, grief, uh, what role maybe couples counseling even plays in financial planning and just hear more of her story. So, uh, Megan, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into financial planning and We'll start there. All right. Thanks, Ed. I actually started and got licensed in 2007 uh, with my Series 7, and I became a financial advisor, Uh which very key term, financial advisor, which is overarching for pretty much packing everything into our industry. And in 2010, my late husband, Keith, was diagnosed with ALS. At the time, I was working at Merrill Lynch, and his disease process really made me understand and become more aware that especially for younger people, the financial plan is way more important than getting the investments right. So as you can imagine, getting a catastrophic terminal illness diagnosis in your mid-30s, he had just turned 40, I was 34 at the time, was challenging, honestly, like as a couple and parents from the emotional side, beyond words. But when I go back and I look at our financial plan at the time, I had gone eyes wide open to the Merrill Lynch insurance portal about a year prior because Keith's global company had dropped disability insurance. I priced out what it would cost us privately and decided, oh, that's too expensive because it was five times more than his group plan at work. So I made a huge mistake in our personal financial plan. And as you and I both know, money can't fix everything. But having that money would have seriously reduced some major stress. And it was a catalyst into this epiphany that financial planning and having that core foundation takes priority over having the best mutual fund matrix on the planet. Like who cares about the investments at that point when we really needed insurance? 
that is such a powerful story of why comprehensive planning is so important and having a balanced and holistic look at all the moving pieces financially mm-hmm. is you've lived through that consequence of saying, well, this is too expensive. And, you know, I think even what comes to my mind is how price sensitive we are as, as humans. Mm-hmm. And I think for most of us, anytime you have something, anything, and then you say, well, it's worth, it's now going to cost you five times most of us are going to go into shock and say, no, thanks. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't take the gas prices going up 10 cents for some people to start freaking out. So five times on disability insurance and that, that was, would have maybe been a meaningful percentage of household income. And that's some of these tough trade-offs that we have to make in financial planning is having these financial instruments like disability insurance cost real dollars and present. And I don't know about you, but I think most of us go on thinking, Bad things don't happen to me. It's everybody else that it happens to. I don't know if that was part of what was in your decision. Right. Yeah. ALS is one of those diseases of there's no rhyme or reason. There is a familia form, but that's only maybe 13%, I think, of the ALS population. And Keith didn't have neurological diseases in his family. So it was a complete shock and out of the blue to have two young, healthy people, you know, have this tragedy in the household. And again, like the harder part is really as a wife, becoming a caregiver, becoming an advocate and what that, the impact of that was on my career, yet alone his, we called it his retirement years. So living our plan from a financial standpoint was tough. I mean, to say the least, we had two full, full time incomes coming into the household Uh, He qualified for disability through Social Security, which is not great income replacement at all. It's a safety net. We were able to keep a roof over our head and food on the table, but there was in the back of my mind of, oh my gosh, are we going to have to move in with our parents, you know, and which one's going to take us? So ALS comes with a lot of uh, durable medical equipment, how to afford that. And when I work with caregivers, it's very traditional to see that the caregiver wants the best care possible for their spouse or loved one. And the loved one wants to make sure that the caregiver will be okay when they're gone, right? So it's like this duality that's going on of wanting the best for each other because you love one another so much. And how do we come in as financial planners and support both of those wishes? I had to practice several times in the mirror when I worked with my first caregiver that had a story very similar to mine to be able to tell them that they were both going to be okay financially from a technical standpoint and that ooh, I might cry again uh, adding another zero behind their net worth would not get them what they truly wanted more time together with better health so does the money matter yes and no Yes and no. And just, you know, hearing the emotion coming up for you is this is such powerful work for you. This is so much more than the math. This is about working with real human lives, real people, and touching stories that are familiar to our own. And you know the burden of being a caregiver. And as best as you know, you know, you, you can understand the perspective of the person that's losing their life. And that tension, that duality, I really appreciate the way you highlight that. 
and then what I'm imagining is the value of having someone like yourself be able to be there in that neutral middle position and help both parties see and validate that that need and then help them hopefully find some common ground. Yeah, I'm trying to make the best of my experience, which was so tragic. Yeah. And help and support others because I've walked that path before. And, you know, I lead with empathy, right? To be able to very much relate to the situation. But we work with compassion. Compassion means you have the ability to help and support. And I have that. I can run the numbers. I can do the math on the technical side. And then transition into and back to the empathy of now that we've got this right, let's have those conversations about what a legacy and a life well lived really means to you. And then I can go back and feather in. How does the money support that, right? <laughs> you know, and how do I make sure I keep their mind at ease when you get the green light to go support that legacy that has financial support to it, like last trips or family outings or anything that might have an, a cost assessed to it, not just the medical building, but also the, the living. How is that going to be supported? And how do we as planners give that green light to say, yes, go ahead and spend $20,000 and take a caregiver with you so you have help and you're not stressed out about the logistics of working through this family vacation or this final party or whatever it is. Right. So both the caregiver and the patient uh, can enjoy those moments and they can enjoy them together. Really coming back, Megan, I picked up on something you said about compassion and empathy and the way you differentiated them really stood out in my mind is, would you say that empathy is really understanding the person's position and compassion is doing the work that supports them? Is that kind of what I was picking up? Because, you know, I, I don't know that I've really thought through, but as people are listening to this, that there really is multiple pieces all at play here. Mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate enough to find an article from the Harvard Business Review that talked about sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Uh-huh. Right? You can feel badly for someone else and express sympathy to them. Right. We can relate to somebody else and express empathy to them. And we can have compassion, which means that we're actively supporting and helping them. So I kind of did this hierarchy on language. And it was fascinating. And I decided to own it as my own. But that is from the Harvard Business Review at some point. I'm happy to share the article with you. Yeah, if you're able to pull it up, I'd love to and add it into the, the show notes because I know that many people that are listening to this are, are caregivers in formal title or in informal role. And caregiver burnout is so, so real. And I think when we have language to describe what we're doing, it just helps ease the burden a little bit. Right. And that's, you know, as it were, kind of thing about the compassion fatigue, right, is that doing the work with and it's the overextending and how do we hold boundaries and care for ourselves in the caregiving roles that we find ourselves in that are so very, very valuable. Wow. Now, before we started this show, you were starting to talk about so much of what you learned around grief and that process and what the grieving process is like. And it definitely mirrors what I've learned as a couples therapist walking with people through their grief. 
Can you share your perspective on going through this grief process and um, what you've learned and what you continue to learn as you're supporting people? Absolutely. These are things that I just own to be reality. So if I state them like fact, and it's my personal story, I apologize. <laughs> um, when you're a caregiver, they talk about how stressful caregiving is and to prioritize self-care. It is very, very important. And then yet I look back and I can say that my role as wife and it, and my role as a caregiver was part of being a wife. And it is honestly one of, it. now it's my greatest accomplishment. We, when we talk about agape love, the full spectrum of love, I lived my wedding vows. I fulfilled them. I continue to fulfill them. Grief, I think, is lifelong. It is an extension of love, and love doesn't die. So these are facts for me. Like, I live this, and I'm trying to change a societal per perception about, like, grief being this one-year linear six stages of grief. And, you know, and we, we know that it's not linear. Right. It's, and what my experience was, the first couple months, almost probably the first year, not that loss isn't hard, but I felt like I was still the woman that I was when I was married. I went through my first and I pat myself on the back for it, right? Like, yay, I got through the first birthday without him. I got through his first birthday without him. And then came Thanksgiving and then Christmas. And what I found to be my truth was I was capable of functioning at a fairly high level in that first year because I still felt like Keith's wife. Even though he wasn't there day by day. And even though I had a huge amount of loss and grief, I still very much identified with the woman I was when I was married to him. His values still lived in me, like the compromises we make in marriage were still very much like the decisions I was making for two instead of one. And it, was, it seemed to be the second year. Um, and and I, I shared with you too, my experience not only going through grief individually, but my work as the financial planner with other widows and my volunteer work as a community advocate with the Modern Widows Club, I am privy to a lot of experiences of fresh widowhood and also tenured widowhood of people looking back and kind of being able to reflect on what the experience was. And um, I, don't, I can't think of one widow that ever told me or didn't agree with the fact that the second year is harder than the first. Yeah. So going through the first Christmas is one thing, but facing the second Christmas and realizing all of your Christmases will be without your loved one is another layer of harsh reality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, you know, you, you were setting this up as like, these are my truths that I've come to know because you've lived through them. And so, you know, they're not maybe fact in the scientific sense, but they're fact in the experience of this is what I've lived. This is what I've heard from so many other people. And they're definitely in alignment with, you know, my own experiences of grief and with many other clients um, going through complex grief. And I, I, I wanted to see if I caught this line that you said that 
just really resonated deeply for me. Grief is an extension of love. And so can you expand on that? And because, you know, this is the healthy love and money podcast. And so what does it mean to love? And part of loving means grieving is kind of what it sounds like you're pointing towards. So can we play with this a little bit and and help expand that? I mean, I guess we could think of grief and love as opposites, but I still, and I still actively love my husband. Yeah. And I grieve him. One word that comes to mind always that I feel like I've overused for the last eight years is bittersweet. So in your moments of joy, there's also a lot of sorrow. Shortly after Keith passed away, my son graduated from high school. My daughter had her eighth grade graduation. And then four years behind, I had my daughter's high school graduation, my son's college graduation. And just recently, my daughter graduated from college as well. Uh-huh. And we ran into someone and got into just a very strange conversation where I found out that another family, their mom had known Keith in high school. And she said, I used to work with Keith and his brother, Chris, and they were so much fun. And I just, I looked at her and I'm like, it was as if I were making the phone calls on the morning he died. My throat expanded, filled up with that bowling ball feeling. I could barely breathe, and I just gasped. I'm like, did they tell you he died? You know, because she had been talking with my parents. So deep mourning hit me in that moment eight years later. Wow. Wow. How do you... Hmm. One, I just want to slow down and acknowledge that, right? That that is part of the truth of grieving too, mm-hmm. is that deep mourning can show up many, many years later. And I would imagine that there's a certain maturation when you go through deep grief and a learning on how to, to be with your own deep grief. And it, you strike me as someone that has probably really understood what it means to grieve and how to grieve well and that you embrace grieving instead of trying to turn away from it. What, what's helped you get there? Yeah. Well, first of all, great therapists like you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Group therapy, individual therapy, and then the modern widows club. It's a support group that allows you space to reflect on where you've been and grow from it. Like lean into this. And I think, what I've learned is to let yourself cry, right? Uh-huh. Just It's okay to feel that feeling. And one time my therapist literally said to me, I want you to take a mental picture of you at this moment. This is you leaning in and not running from quote unquote negative emotions. I don't mind crying for Keith. It's not negative for me. It hurts. I miss him. And it's a part of love. I am the woman I am today because he lived. And it didn't just end with when he was holding my hand next to me. It still is his story, our children, the lives that we started together and the trajectory that his life put me on. Hmm. Okay, now I'm having my own deep grief. Aww. Oh. 
You know, that's the the joy of this work, and and really probably the more more the podcast um, is you get. I'm meeting incredible people, and until you go through something like this, you don't know how to grieve. It's an honor. It's an honor to grieve to have known someone that is worthy of tears. Right, what an amazing man! I can only imagine who you're thinking of right now. Well, and I will share because, I mean, this is, you know, you talk about what I kind of filled in as you were saying that is their their story, Keith's story goes on, even though he's not physically living anymore. His legacy will be in perpetuity. You have your kids, you have your own memories and stories and other things that he started that are still coming to fruition, right? And And that I am who I am because I was married to him. And so, the person that I thought about is, is a close friend of mine that I met in the fire academy who ultimately, unfortunately took his life to suicide. And that happened in the context two days, three days after me meeting my wife. And I, I just can't help but think about how his passing led to the, the quick, quick deepening of my relationship with my wife-to-be. Her character shown through in a way that probably would have shown up in time, but because of that deep grief that I entered with that, she showed up. And and now we're 16 years into marriage and three kids. And um, But it, it, it is part of what also sent me on this learning journey of how to deal with grief because I had no idea how to deal with grief or even to speak the word grief. And, and that predated his passing. But, you know, I think culturally, it sounds like you're on this mission to help people learn how to grieve. And it's not just how to help other people because grief is going to be a very, very personal experience and different for everyone and who you find support from, you know, a new relationship. That's amazing. You're right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And quickens a relationship quickly when you have big things to deal with at the beginning. But I will say it's, I think it's a societal mission. We don't handle death and dying well. We are independent Americans. We're strong. Everything can be fixed. And that was not our experience. He was diagnosed with ALS. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no cure. You know, they talk about hope in diseases. There was, there was no remission. Yeah. There's no treatments to try. There were. He, was, he participated in three drug trials. And so there was always hope. And I think what shocked me the most was the hope that I had the entire time that he was dying, that it would be different. Science would catch up with our timeline. Um, And how important and vital hope is. Right. So I do feel like I'm on a societal mission to hopefully help our culture be able to speak to people that are grieving before they know it themselves. Right? Nobody understands a widow's experience until they become widowed. And 70% of married women will become widowed. Whoa. Wait. The statistic, right? The, the number side, 70%. You may know Daniel Kopp. Do you know Daniel Kopp? Have you met him? I do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, right. He's, he's an incredible guy. He was widowed at a young age as well. Um, and so, he's on the other side of that statistic. Mm-hmm. But as you're saying, 70% of women will be widowed. And and I'm imagining that's over the whole course of life, right? Married women, 70% of 
Married women, excuse me. Yes, married women, yes. How many of them are women that are, I don't know what that line is, 50 or younger that will experience that or, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you know that, but just your general sense is like, how prevalent is young widowhood? So for me, I think the band was 35 to 40 or maybe 35 to 45. I can't remember offhand. In the state of North Carolina, where I am a resident, the number of widows from, I think, 35 to 45 was 0.76%. Wow. Now, the average age of a widow is 59. So a lot of widowhood is happening in those final career years when kids have gone off to college, but a lot sooner than most people would think. I had a grandmother widowed at 69 years old, and I had a grandmother that was widowed at 89, 88 years old. And one lived 22 years in widowhood, the other lived 12. Wow. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. I had a grandmother widowed at 69 years old, and I had a grandmother that was widowed at 89, 88 years old. And one lived 22 years in widowhood, the other lived 12. Wow. I'm taking this a little afield, but this comes right back around to financial planning and how important it is, because I would imagine is that many widows are unprepared to take on the financial responsibilities. They've not participated in the finances, some to their own choice and some to their partner's choice. How do we as a society help continue to move that to where both partners are participating in the finances and they're making informed shared decisions about what's going to happen? So unfortunately, or fortunately, right, Marriage um, doubles the joys and halves the burdens, and we tend to divide and conquer our tasks, right? (laughs) As you can imagine, had I predeceased my husband, he would have been very lost in the financial side. So it doesn't always ring true. I'll just share a quick story about my daughter. I was so proud of her. Uh, She's recently graduated from college. She was able to get her own apartment without mommy co-signing. Yay. Wait. Yeah. And she's quote unquote financially independent. Right. And her girlfriend was talking to her who just moved back home and does not want to look back home. Do you mind me asking about your budget? How do you make this all work out? And Jay was just like, yeah, let's talk about it. I'm happy to tell you how much I make and what I pay for rent and how we share expenses and what the overall cost is. I would love if she were talking about percentages. But <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, good start in the right but, direction. Yeah. Yeah. Like we talk about sex. We, we have sex toy parties. 
there's a lot going on in the things that we used to deem as private and, and things we don't talk about. Uh, our politics, we wear it on our sleeve, on our Facebook pages. Yeah. And yet we don't talk about money. And to me, money is right up there in self-care with learning how to meditate. So if you bear with me for just a minute, my other analogy. Oh, I'm loving this. Keep going, Megan. I'm cheering yeah. you on. I'm just like, yes, keep going. Keep going. I finally came to this other epiphany that money is chi, right? We breathe in, we use our breath as best as possible, and we exhale and we let it go, right? This is de-stressing, it's calming, it's finding a way to live in the now. Money comes into us, we earn it, right? Cash flow is chi. It comes in, we make choices of where to send it, and it goes out. Sure, we save for the future and retirement and certain things, like, and we try and align our morals and values with that savings. But ultimately, money is meant to be spent. Breath is meant to be breathed, right? So getting your headspace right about money as a circulation and breath, and that you're in control of it, as it's necessary, right? Money stops, life stops. If breath stops, life stops. <laughs> right? Uh, 100%. Yes. So the analogy can just keep going. Like we can hold our breath for reason and we can expel it, right? We can calm ourselves with it. We can do deep breathing and shallow breathing. I mean, there's many ways where we physically can calm ourselves down or hyperventilate and hype ourselves up to destruction. So <laughs> I, I just, the analogy does not stop. Money is cheap. That's it. <laughs> oh my gosh. That sounds like a book that you will be writing at some point in the future. I'm, I'm just going to put it out there. All right. Well, you find me the right ghostwriter. <laughs> <laughs> They're out there. Yeah. Well, that, that was a sidebar conversation. We'll figure that one out. Podcast listeners, if you hear this and you're a ghostwriter, go ahead and reach out to me or Megan and say, I'll be your ghostwriter for Money is G. Uh, because I would buy five copies of that just for myself, just so I had them. But that, you know, I, I do think that this is that deep integrative work that leading edge financial planners are doing is they're not just understanding investment methodology and taxation and insurance and cash flow and education funding, right? All those major conventional buckets. Right. Leading edge financial planners are looking at philosophy and meaning and body work and therapy and saying, how do these come to inform the way that we approach? How can these understandings of self and other help us have a more humane approach to money and, you know, I, I was thinking, like, we we hold our breath and then we let it out. And I think about how many people are holding their financial breath. Like, they're just like, <gasps> and they're now white knuckling and then they're shaking. And then they show up to us as a financial planner or as a financial therapist. And it's like, okay, let's breathe again. Remember, like, let's regain perspective on the reality of money, that money is supposed to flow in and out. And this is not to say, like, we don't accumulate wealth. Because we, right. that, those are our future breaths that we're, <laughs> but if we're only saving future breaths, but not breathing now, we're going to die prematurely. Right. So we need to be enjoying now and having pleasure. And I think that's something also I'd be interested in, in your perspective is really kind of pleasure-based financial planning. I think that so many people have like a duty bound or a guilt bound orientation around money and spending. And it's like, 
what does it mean to really have a pleasurable relationship with money? Like that just is a foreign concept, I think, to most of us. And and really, it's a new concept for me is to think, wait, money is here for pleasure, for joy, for satisfaction. Well, and then there's the happiness curve too. So, barely having more than your basic needs is where people are happiest. Right. We're miserable if we can't put food on the table and a roof over our head. Right. We're also miserable when we have an abundance. And I would argue that because I would think, I'm going to stretch here because this is not anything that I've read or concrete. Yeah. But abundance without a plan sounds pretty miserable. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, like, we all think it's, it's almost cliche to say, like, we want to live our best life. Oh, but I don't know anything about money. Or, oh, I don't want to talk about that. It's so bad. Part of living your best life is living a healthy life and having a healthy relationship with money. Like, you and I understand this. We've, we've talked about this. We've studied this. There is, yes, like you said, education, planning, all the technical stuff that I really enjoy. I love my CFP coursework. I love continuing ed. Right? You yes. We met each other because we nerd out on <laughs> all, the, all the things in that group. Right. And so there's, there's definitely a whole profession in what we do. And I would say when you're living your best life, especially as a couple, you need to be cognizantly aware that marriage ends in two ways and there's no easy way out. You're either going to be a widow or widower for the first to pass, or you're going to go through a divorce. You can split everything. It's so challenging. And so when you look at the leading causes of divorce, how can you avoid that? One of the top three leading reasons of divorce is money. You got to get it right with yourself before you can get it right with someone else, right? Oh, man. I... And so grateful for this conversation. When, I don't know when people, will, what day of the week people will listen to this, but just so people know, this is a recording on a Monday. And just in case you think Mondays suck, this is an incredible Monday. Like this is really a highlight Monday for me. And, and leads us up right to where I want to kind of wrap our conversation up for this, this time, because we'll definitely have to have you back, Megan, as a guest. There's just so much, right? That my intuition said there's something special about this woman. I don't know her. I think we've talked for no more than five minutes at the conference and said, let's just follow up. So here we are. And I'm like, oh yeah, we need to spend like uh, probably a week together figuring this all out. But, um, you know, one of the things that I, I say that the financial planning industry is completely missing, right? They, they love analyzing for risk and what's your investment risk profile and how much stock market volatility can you handle and premature death. We're going to mitigate that with life insurance and disability. And, and all good. Those are types of risks we need to think about and figure out where you're at. But we don't talk about the death risk or the divorce risk and the dysfunction risk, meaning like really problematic mental health issues that are going to sabotage a relationship with money or divorce. And so that assessment of how are you really doing it with your own mental health? How are you really doing with your own relationship health? And you got to be able to tend to that. And we talked about, Megan, that you're now, um, you've learned about Gottman Couples Counseling. So, can you speak a little bit about what you're learning in Gottman's Couples Counseling, how that fits into this wonderful conversation we're having today? It's like a combination, I would say, of Gottman and Renee Brown. 
My God. Oh, yeah. To be able to show up with vulnerability in the relationships that you have is truly a gift to the other person. Yeah. And a blessing to yourself. It helps deepen relationships and ties for sure. And so learning about the four horsemen from Gotham, you know, what's <laughs> my defense mechanism? And between Keith and me, we had the same. We we had the we're gonna avoid everything by laughing it off, right? We'd have dark duff humor, which was healthy for both of us because we were tracking the same and not we weren't avoiding hard conversations. It would just go something like this. I remember Keith showing up one day and he said something sarcastic to me. And his ALS started in the form of his legs. But we were ridiculous with each other. And I remember looking at him and I was like, you watch it, cup guy. I'll swipe your good leg and you'll be looking up at me for a change. Mind <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you, he was taller than me. That's what I meant by that. My son looked at me and was like, that's the worst thing you could say. And I just looked at him. I mean, if looks could kill, I'd be dead the way that my son looked. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, Bruce, we're going to laugh. We're still going to have our humor through this. Yeah. And there were times where our our conversations were very emotional and teary. Yeah. And we could link them to that, too. And those were usually, this is so strange, but you know how they tell you to talk to your kids in the car, like the rear view mirror. You can look at them in the rear view mirror. Right. He was in a wheelchair, and his wheelchair many times was, was behind me. And so we talked about suicide. ALS is very much a disease where suicide is very prevalent or the um, Dr. Kevorkian type conversation, right? Yeah. Assisted suicide. Absolutely. To which I told him, I said, you know, don't look at me for assisted suicide. Like, you're going to die and then I'd go to jail and who's going to raise the children? Right? <laughs> right. That's <laughs> so, a bad outcome. It was very logical, kind of funny um, in a really dark moment in time. But those conversations were so impactful and meaningful to me to make sure that we talked about everything we needed to talk about. Yeah. We both needed to have open communication to make sure that no leap was unturned and that there wasn't a life or a possibility of our love unturned. Wow. Wow. That's great. And so... Mm. I'm just amazed at, you know, your own marriage and your ability to reflect on it and, and all the meaning that you're able to draw from it. And, you know, I don't know how this will sit with the other listeners, but I imagine it's going to be a ray of hope. And, you know, as you look forward from here, what's, what do you see in your future, you know, with financial planning, you're in Costa Rica, you said that this is a kind of like something new and different for you to try. What's, what's on the horizon for you? and that's a really great question. This was something that's been hard for me to answer for 12 years. Keith got his diagnosis 12 years ago. And if someone said, hey, what's your five-year plan? I'm like, oh my gosh, pass the Kleenex. I mean, I'm going to be widowed. I'm going to be an empty nester. I'm gonna, right. My dog probably will be gone. And all those things have happened now, right? right. I'm an empty nester. I, I love it. I love seeing the good independent children that we raised now as adults. Right. And then there's some fear to it too. I'm alone. 
Uh-huh. But I'm not alone. And that's key. Mm-hmm. I have a strong support group in the Modern Widows Club. I have really great family. My in-laws include me on everything. I truly married into a family. And I feel like I've lived this almost a spectrum of a full lifetime. And yet, if it's based on how old my grandmother's got to live, I've got another 40 or 50 years left. you got a whole other lifetime to go. I know. Watch and out. Yeah. I um, Sometimes I wonder if it's courage or stupidity. I'm traveling by myself in a foreign country where I don't speak the language, and I am so happy to be here. Do you hear that? Those are tropical birds. I've seen a toucan on a daily basis here. Yes, yes. Life is beautiful, and it's meant to be lived. And when we can work from anywhere, I'm just working from four different walls with cooler weekends. And I do hope that it's an inspiration for other people. Being female and traveling by yourself, I know can be super intimidating. However, I have a lot of confidence in being aware of my being, my size, my personality, right? Like, yeah, I can be, yeah, I can be overly friendly and that can be problematic. Luckily, <laughs> <laughs> Costa Rica is super friendly. Yeah. And I did research the area. Um, I went for a walk the other morning and I heard something growl at me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I looked up poisonous snakes, but I don't think I realized (laughs) jaguars are living in the rainforest. I'm in the rainforest. (laughs) (laughs) It was probably a monkey. Right, right. (laughs) So there is, um, yeah, courage and stupidity. I don't know. I think I'm kind of balancing on that line. Probably walk hand in hand, don't they? I mean... You know, I think, you know, yeah, I mean, I've, with my background as a firefighter, people are like, oh, you're so brave and so courageous. I'm like, well, I mean, I appreciate you giving me that benefit of the doubt, but I think there's another side to that too. And, you know, so, yeah, I mean, but it's both. And, you know, that's probably one of the bigger things I've become a fan of is both and, right? And bittersweet (laughs) so encapsulates that. And so much of life is better lived with a both and, not an either or mindset. I agree. I I just, I have this point in time where my children are independent. I don't have grandchildren yet. Yeah. And it's just me. So the only thing that would hold me back are my own limitations. Yeah. Right. I could make excuses. I can't tell you how many times I hear people, especially women say, I can't afford this. And I've leased my condo while I was gone for a long-term lease, which offsets my travel prices. Right. So I can be wherever I would like to be. And so the only limit is taking too long to make a decision. <laughs> That's, which is a real risk, which is a real risk, <laughs> which is a real risk. Well, Megan, this has been an incredible conversation. So rich. I think we've laughed, we've cried and, I don't think we felt angry. It's probably good we haven't felt angry, but um, wow. What um, what parting words of advice or guidance would you offer anybody um, from where you sit today? I think the biggest lesson I've learned over the last 12 years is so simple, and that is to feel your feelings. Hmm. Feel your feelings, right? We laughed, we cried, 
uh, anger, I was a very, like, I would say I'm a recovering hothead, right? I'm a redhead, I'm a recovering hothead. I do feel anger, and I actually had a voice for that anger called advocacy. And that's mm. why I'm an advocate for the Modern Widows Club. Yeah. And I was an advocate for my late husband. He was such a good man. I was not going to let the medical community like, yes. diminish him or let, you know, skimp anywhere. And that takes a voice. And even if you don't voice it out to the world, internalize it and listen to yourself because our intuition is huge. And sometimes we need help to unpack that. Good help comes with finding a therapist, finding your support group, like your tribe, other people like-minded. And arguably, I would say the sooner you get a certified financial planner involved, the better your life becomes. I can echo that. We've been working with, my wife and I have been working with different financial planners for almost the whole time that we've been married. And I'm blown away with where we're at and where we're headed because of that. We've had to do our own work and make the decisions and take action. But that guidance has been so helpful. And I want to close with obviously saying thank you, but validating a woman's anger. And I love that you added advocacy, right? Anger gets such a bad rap and especially I think with women. And so like that validation, like anger is good when used well. And it can, one role that it can take is advocacy. Another is protection. Mm, yes. And so paying attention to what is this anger about and for is so valuable. Right. And I had to learn and, and it took a couple of years that there was no amount of advocacy that was going to bring Keith back, right? The mm. things our heart truly desires. When you look back at anger, anger fuels a lot of positivity. Dr. Martin Luther King was someone who was angry. That fueled the equal rights movement. Yeah. And still, like when you mention women's anger, I'm a feminist. All feminism means is that we believe in equal rights for women. Yeah. So, especially when it comes to finance, women have been held out of the financial and legal world for all of written history up until recently. Yes. It was a year before I was born, 1974, where a woman, a married woman, did not need her husband's signature to get a credit card. And the only reason I looked that up was because it came up in a Modern Widows Club support group meeting. Um, what would you recommend to your best friend if you found out her husband was dying? And five out of seven women on our support group Zoom call that night said to get a major credit card in your own name. And I was like, where does that come from? And I think a lot of us, even today, like, you don't realize who owns the account. Is it joint or are you an authorized user? So that's just good awareness for today. But in Googling that, that's when I found out 1974. My gosh, we are property. We are chattel. We were treated like that for centuries. Yeah, it is. Uh humbling and an important reminder to have this history drawn forward and state it because that's not what's taught in school history, unfortunately. Right. And so that's just one final note. So ladies, forgive yourself for not knowing all this. 99% of Americans don't know all this, right? It's why we don't have wills. It's why we don't have more than $2,000 in our bank account. Yeah. However, ladies, we do it really well. 
once we learn something, we are more likely to apply it than you guys. <laughs> 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 <Little> counterpart. <laughs> Fair enough. So Fair enough. There's a lot of hope in women, especially with finances, but we do combat the longer life expectancy. Our husbands tend to marry their long-term care plan. Right. Yes, right. Yep. Well, yeah. care plan. I'm going to have to pay for my own. So there's a lot of things that are working against us, which is why we need to work smarter. Awesome. Megan, thank you so much for your generosity of time. And we'll be in touch and have you back soon. Great. Happy to be here. Thank you for your time, Ed. I really appreciate the work you're doing. You're welcome. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money at... Ed.